Wig, did you just say wig? Wig, okay. Wow, this is a great start. <laughs> um, it, it's one of those days. It's a lazy Saturday. Um, uh, but no, I'm it's Martyr. a Sunday. What are you talking? Oh, about? fuck off! I'm Martyr. <laughs> I'm C Tepper. <laughs> and this is Wigging Out. Um, late February edition. Super late. Why. We're like Su- the last day in February, I think. This episode. Is it a leap year this year? Or was that last year? Yeah, it's, like, right. it's not this year. It's only 20 yeah. days. Um, but Caitlin, who are we doing today? Who are we talking to? So all the way from Texas. She's comedy queen. She's a real estate queen. She's going to serve all your needs. It's Ruby Ridiculous. Hello. Welcome. Welcome. Well, welcome. thank you so much for having me. You're the first guest we've had that has actually done radio and stuff. Oh. <laughs> I was going to say, you have a radio voice. Yeah. Uh, Thank it very, you. It sounded very professional. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I got into radio when I was young. Um, I guess it's like if you have a 13-inch dick, you would just get into porn, right? Uh, <laughs> Listen, like... I've been trying, but it hasn't worked out. <laughs> Play with your strong suit. <laughs> I guess we'll start off how I've been starting every single interview since we came back. How's life in the pandemic? <laughs> you know, I, I think that I will start with the best thing that's come from it is sobriety. Yeah. Um, we'll talk like, a lot about that later as well. <laughs> yeah. As far as the pandemic in general, it didn't impact me. So I hate to come off like privileged, but... It slowed me down for, like, two months, made me reevaluate my whole life and, like, address the fact that the world was ending. And then when it didn't end, I was, like, left with, like, what's, like, I still have to keep working. And so it it mentally fucked me really hardcore. But overall, right now, it's just insanely busy. So I'm, I'm fortunate on that front. You didn't really get infected in Texas. So you're from Texas. Are you from Texas? I was going to Yeah, ask originally from Corpus Christi. So, ah. like, we're, like, Tammy Brown's from my hometown. Yes. Isn't um, that by Mexico or am I totally off? It's, it's yeah, it's headed that way. It's, like, six hours from Mexico. Okay, but, gotcha. Well, I guess if you go three hours, you can get to Laredo. Or, I, don't, I don't know. I never, I, the only time I went to Mexico, I got arrested. And oh. Mugged, and mugged by the police. So. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I never went back except, like, not a border town. So, yeah, Corpus, Corpus Christi, Rockport, that area, I grew up. And then I moved to Dallas um, right after high school. And after about a year, year and a half, I had visited Austin. And then I moved to Austin. And I've been here since 2000. So, no, 2001. Wow. Yeah, I moved here in 01. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Um, what was oh, it like wow. growing up in Texas, being queer? You know, I, I think that's... It's hard to answer because I don't have a lot of comparisons. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I grew up very Texas. I grew up on the coast and then half my time on a ranch. So we had cows. We actually, I mean, I, we shot guns, we fished, we had four wheelers. I baled hay. We had a garden. I, 
I thought that was normal. Like, yeah. it was just a normal childhood. And I hated the farm. Like, I hated the farm life. I wanted to be in the city, which I thought Corpus Christi was, like, the biggest city. Because <laughs> we lived outside of Dallas, and we only went in to go shopping, like, once a year. Oh, wow. And so, like, that was definitely a big city. But as far as, like, growing up, Corpus Christi just seemed like a big city to me. And then as soon as I left, I realized and started traveling that I had a traditional Texas childhood. (laughs) I mean, there's only one way to find out. Yeah, so like when people say it's a stereotype in Texas and cows and farmers, but I'm like, I actually had that stereotypical childhood. I mean, it seems pretty like healthy. You know, smelling fumes like we were. As in, I was. You were. I I just rode my crocodile or alligator to the Publix every morning to get some fresh oats. Yeah, Martyr's from um, Florida. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think that's the problem. Like, I didn't know the difference, but in... Everybody wants to live off the grid now. Everybody wants that yeah. farm. They want their own garden, their fresh produce, their farm-raised animals to eat. And it's like, I, yeah, you just, you don't realize it's, you take it for granted. But I guess if the world ended and we had to go back to farming and living off the land, I would be, like, <laughs> the messiah of it. <laughs> I would be the drag queen rancher. Oh, my God. I would move in with you. I feel like you know what you would be doing. And I, I would certainly keep everyone would not. alive. <laughs> <laughs> so you moved to Austin. Um, how did you, like, I don't know if this is a big jump, but how did you just, like, end up getting into drag? Well, uh, oh, God, that's a long story. That's what <laughs> we're here for. <laughs> yeah, so um, uh, drag, I was always very cross-dresser kid um I was definitely like very feminine and very like petite with a little high-pitched voice and like people would call the house and I was everybody thought I was my mom and then I dressed up so my grandma was a big drag queen essentially and (laughs) when I as Texas women tend to be yeah she was (laughs) your typical Texas woman and she had five husbands and she had just fur coats and diamonds and oh my God. she had hair pieces and jewels and yeah. she had this big Mariah Carey style closet. And I would go in there and play with all the hair pieces and um, put makeup on. I put my brother in drag at like 12 or 13 and we were mm-hmm. like putting together these huge theater productions because I was a theater kid. Mm-hmm. And uh, my mom caught us. She came to my, we were at my grandma's and they went out shopping and they came home, and I was like, I had to be 12 or 13. And she just packed all of our shit and said, get in the car, we're going home. And I'm like, we just drove six hours to Grandma's. Like, what do you... It's another thing about uh, Texas. You can drive 12 hours and still be in Texas. Sounds but, like Florida. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And and so that... that uh, I didn't know what that meant, but my mom got us in the car and she chain smoked cigarettes the whole way home and was like, there's someone in our family that cross dresses and we don't approve of it. And I was like, who? And she's like, and like, she didn't want to come out and say it to her 12 and 14 year old kid. Yeah. And I was like, who? And she's like, well, if you can guess, I'll tell you. And we're like, dad. And she's like, no. (laughs) And we're just like, I don't know that this is weird. You know, you're a child. Yeah. And uh, I was just doing what I wanted to do and be gay and be a silly little boy. And so come to find out it was my grandma's husband. And 
And so he would identify, I mean, as a transgendered person today. Mm-hmm. He's He passed away many years ago. But, um, you know, growing up at that time, it was the height of the AIDS crisis. Mm-hmm. You know, post, like, the height of everyone dying. I mean, this was had to have been 92, maybe 93. And yeah, that ages me. I'm going to be 40 in two in like in a month. But that's, that's like, I think I would have gone on and just done drag and like been a fabulous, beautiful queen. And like, I, there was so much shame attached to that because I'm being told that one, we knew he was our step grandpa. Mm-hmm. And then my mom knew this whole time that like in her impression, that was a really icky thing. And she thought that he was Im- impressing that on us. And oh. so like her only defense mechanism as a mother was to make sure that this creepy stepdad of hers was not making her kids dress up when she wasn't around. Mm-hmm. And so I immediately just was like, this is shameful. I'll never do this again. Uh-huh. And then growing up in Texas and especially Austin in 2000s, like 99, 2000, 2001, it was very frat boy, Abercrombie, flip-flops, you know, toxic masculinity, all about. And we didn't care about drag. There was not a big drag scene here. Mm-hmm. There was two drag queens, Nadine, Nadine and Satine, which now is Nadine and Rachel Michaels. Mm-hmm. And there was not a drag scene. So there wasn't a lot of opportunity to try it out. Yeah. Um, living in Dallas, there was. But again, I was part of that shame where I'm like, no, 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 like that's feminine. A lot of that um, self-hatred, bottom, beta male energy that we had back then was, like, accepted. It was the norm. Yeah. And so it was years later. I, I Like, I, I did stand-up. I did a TV, radio. I did a bunch of things. And I think, ultimately, I always wanted to do drag. So I didn't mm-hmm. professionally launch a drag persona, a name, like, a career until, like, 2013. Um, so I got into drag, like completely going against the grain, doing it all on my own, never having a drag mother, never having, I mean, the closest thing to a drag mother would be Portia in New York. She's one of my sisters. We grew up I mean, she, I admired her drag and her talent and not her drag, but her talent. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. um, but, uh, she was always very, she kind of helped me foster making it a career make and doing mm-hmm. drag and mm-hmm. making it more about my strong suits and being funny and being a comedian. And I don't know, long story short, I, I got out of entertainment because I was an insult comic and mm-hmm. I was just really offensive. And I, I, I still am. But when I got into real estate, I told myself, this is over with. You got to shut it down. There's no more comedy. You got to scrape everything off the internet. Your clients are going to see that you're talking about taking loads and just being <laughs> offensive. And and that was before drag. <laughs> and so then I got into real estate and I was quite successful in it. And I won several awards and I was just like, I made a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And when your whole life, you're like, oh, I just need to make money. I just need to make money. And then you make a shit ton of money and you're still miserable and you're still mm-hmm. like not happy. 
And I remember Margaret Cho telling me backstage one time when I was like asking her, I'm like, God, you're really subdued. And she's like, I just got off stage. Like, that's my vehicle to be entertaining. I'm not going to be entertaining to you in a fucking green room. Yeah. And I was like, oh, okay, fuck me, right? <laughs> and, but it all made sense. And so I ended up like, after being miserable, having money, it was like, what? I need to have entertainment. I need to have an artistic vehicle. I need to... Mm-hmm do something and that's when it was like I'm okay with drag like mm-hmm. and I just did it I did it and it was when my grandmother was dying ironically oh, like wow. she announced mm. that she was passing and it was like you know what like she was encouraging me and telling mm-hmm. me you know I used to go to drag shows in San Francisco and in New York and she would take her husband and like that was the thing they did was go to drag shows and he would dress up and she would dress him up and so it's like full circle. That's how I got into drag was shame kept me from getting into drag. And then success and money showed me that I still wasn't happy with my career, that money wasn't the end all be all. So um, Ruby became a thing. And um, I just, that's that's how I got into drag. I like it. All. It's very full circle. How did you yeah. come up with the name Ruby Ridiculous? It was because my grandmother, her name was Ruby. Okay. And mm. she was ridiculous and I love she, it though <laughs> she was very much um like a Karen Walker from Will and Grace oh my um, god <laughs> like Joan Rivers like she was just said crazy fucking shit like <laughs> I remember like there's a, here's an example I remember when I was a child and mm-hmm. she was visiting and there was a tampon commercial and I had this friend like girlfriend like you know elementary girlfriends or whatever Mm -hmm. over at the house and she lived in the neighborhood and my grandpa the another a tampon commercial came on and we didn't I didn't think anything of it but then like a massingale commercial came on like two breaks later and it Mm -hmm. was the same woman doing both commercials (laughs) and my grandma just blurts out like that's the same woman from that tampon commercial I know too much about that woman's pussy (laughs) and it (laughs) It was so obnoxious <laughs> at the time. And then now I'm like, that's a good indicative like reminder of what she was like. Oh, and, so good. <laughs> and then, like I said, having five husbands and growing up from the 30s till then, like, like she was just lived on her own terms. She always told people off. She was funny. She went to church and argued with people about theology. She just didn't give a shit what anyone thought about her. And then I called her before she died and I told her, I was like, you know, I... I created a drag persona and I have two names and I want you to be the tiebreaker. And mm-hmm. I said, it's either Ruby ridiculous or Ruby ridiculous. And without missing a beat, she just like blurted out. She goes, I like Ruby ridiculous. Cause I like the dick close to Ruby. <gasps> and, 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 I was like, <laughs> and I was like, that's, that's it. So that's how I got my drag name. That's I let her amazing. pick it. Wow. <laughs> So I guess you saw like the kind of the rise of Austin drag. What's that scene been like over time? Is there a rise? I I feel like for sure. Yeah. There's so many queens from Austin. Yeah, Austin's grown a lot. So, I mean, it was a sleepy little town. And um, like I said, there wasn't a drag scene. Then... I kind of, I moved out of downtown mm-hmm. as the scene was rising. I built my house in a suburb, so I, I, I'm i not downtown every day. I don't see the scene. 
I know the girls. I'm friends with all of them. Everybody knows who the fuck I am. Yeah. But I've always done my shows at comedy clubs yeah. and at theaters, and they're all closed down now. Like, literally, that's, like, North Door was a big uh, venue for me. Cap City Comedy Club was a big venue for me. Um, Institution Theater, even though they didn't pay me. Uh, <laughs> I was kind of glad when they closed. Um <laughs> But I I didn't perform in the club, so the drag yeah. scene's always been like this side bubble. This side bubble of yeah. me, and I've always yeah. operated in my own lane. So I'm happy to see that drag is 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 growing in Austin. Austin's not like I said; it used to be a small town. Now it's just a full on city, and I'm I'm glad to see it. Yeah, I don't see the only talent I really see are the girls that come from New York. Like mm-hmm. Sable that moved here when Portia's in town and she's singing live. When there's, um, when Ruby Ruse come here. When Tina, Br- oh, I don't think Tina Brunner performed here. I think she was just dating a guy here. But <laughs> so, we'll get into that later. Right. Um, <laughs> and then uh, you know, so I think there's some talent here. I I still Drag Race definitely added to that. Pheromone used to live here, yeah. so that doesn't include in the talent. Um, but <laughs> then. Um, you know, and Cynthia. Cynthia yeah, was I was going to say Cynthia. I love her. She's a dear friend and a sister. And I, you know, she was part of that scene. Her and Kelly Klein were running the show at Oil Can Harry's. They were started, they were the ones that kind of started a competition and allowed other girls to do mm-hmm. drag. Because mm-hmm. before then, it's like if you didn't do pageants and didn't have a title yeah. and you weren't in that group, then you were never going to get on stage. And they didn't allow anyone to share the stage with them. Mm-hmm. Until Kelly Klein took over and started doing Drag Survivor and those competitions. And then that became very prevalent. And then it started churning out drag babies like a mm-hmm. fucking cat. I don't know. Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, I know like pageant drag is like huge in Texas. So yeah, I could see a lot of gatekeeping. That so that's very Dallas, yeah. That yeah. pageant drag, it's it, and that was it, those queens that lived here had a very tiny piece of that pie. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I said, I'm I I love Nadine and Rachel. Rachel's really close. Nadine's still recovering from being. Yeah, on how is she doing? I mean, we're we're filming a little earlier than the, what this will be released as, but yeah, just recently they I think she's off like the full time ventilator and the and the intubation. Like she's mm-hmm. still. I think she got a trach. I think she's doing better. Which okay. um, was the last. They just released that news. Her mom came out and said that. She's making signals and communicating. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's improvement. It's not still in a, a drug-induced coma on a ventilator. So I wish her the best, and I hope yeah. she does well. I've known Nadine forever, and Nadine and Rachel are drag. They mm-hmm. were drag, so I'm not disparaging them. I do love them. Mm-hmm. But it, I think, I don't know. I, I, I'll circle back to that and say I've learned in my sobriety that a lot of my feeling of isolation or not inclusion was all in my head. Mm-hmm. Um, I always felt, I always felt shorted, but I'm having to work through that through therapy and through sobriety, that that was something I built up in my head from the shame from my childhood. So I don't, like I said, I don't want anyone to perceive I'm talking bad about Austin drag. The girls are great. A lot of the new girls I can't keep up with and I don't know who they are. I wouldn't. (laughs) Uh, I just, I don't know. Um, I don't, I, I will get to know them like Colleen DeForest. I don't know if you know her. Mm -mm. So she's. She's been hilarious. Like, mm-hmm. she's Senator Colleen DeForest. And I think she's hilarious. Like, she doesn't change her outfit or her wig. 
Um, but she's got persona and talent, and she's funny. So it's like, to me, that matters, you know? Yeah. Well, you kind of, like, did your own path. Um, did you do... St- did you do stand up in drag? I'm trying to remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, that was my. What first. was that like? That's like I so still, un- unique. <laughs> I still do. That's kind of my gig. Yeah. Um, uh, I I did stand up before, and then mm-hmm. so when I started drag, you know, and it was it had a lot to do with Bianca. You know, when Bianca mm-hmm. got on and she won, and I was like, oh, it's possible. So my this whole idea of me converting to a stand-up comedian, like I always looked at Eddie Izzard as a as a role mm-hmm. model. Yeah. And I always loved Lady Bunny by far my biggest idol mm-hmm. um, when I was looking at drag from the outside lens. Yeah. Um. So stand-up and just having a cohesive show and being funny, I that's I didn't. I was so against lip syncing, but again, I wanted to make myself completely different. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to be a part of that. Now I'll fucking lip sync anytime. Like it's, it's not that it's easy. It is hard. I just, I don't know. Stand up to me made sense because I'm writing the lyrics. I'm mm-hmm. performing it. It's how you say it, not what you're saying. And yeah. I, I always loved that. So that was just, um, I will say that drag added a component that made it uncomfortable at first because I think I was uncomfortable in drag. Um, Uh, I was so used to just going on stage and flip flops and shorts and hosting shows, Austin's laid back thing. I would spend all my time rehearsing my material. And Mm -hmm. then when I got to drag, you got two hours on top of that and Mm -hmm. rehearsing Mm -hmm. Um, so that definitely was a challenge, but, uh, I love it. I I think there should always be some aspect. I think girls that can't, um, that want to be on drag race that can't work a mic and can't Mm -hmm. talk to a crowd should never even audition. Yeah. I I think if, if you don't, if you can lip sync and look pretty and do splits and jump kicks, but you can't host your own show, don't even audition. It's a, it's a fucking TV show, you know? I agree. That's how I look at stand-up. I, I, I look at a lot of girls need to really um, add that to their tool, bowl, tool belt. And with that, I eventually challenge myself to lip sync because I obviously sucked at it. <laughs> <laughs> how have audiences um, received your like drag stand-up? I think it's been great. You know, I mean, uh, every show I, I... I think I'll reference when I came to Fire Island the first time, it, it was jarring because everybody here when they came to my shows they were fans they knew who I was from when I did radio when I was hosting South by Southwest parties when I was on stage as Jason yeah so it was easy to fill a theater it was easy to fill a comedy club and everybody laughs at everything I say (laughs) um and so then then when I came to Fire Island it was like cluck cluck and there was like I was already nervous the whole situation the girls are super talented and you know, you're competing with New York's finest. And I, I don't know, I choked the first time I ever went on stage in New York because I was just so used to people laughing at everything mm-hmm. that I didn't know how to, ha- how to handle when punchlines weren't landing. And everyone's just staring at me like, okay, what's next? And I'm like, oh, uh, um, cue <laughs> okay, the music check. <laughs> you know, it's like, I feel like, well, New Yorkers audiences are just known to be really jaded because we've kind of yeah. seen it all. So yeah. it takes a lot and to impress New York audiences. It's, so that was like, that definitely made, like I, I call Fire Island the pussy stepper of drag because it's like, you've got, 
you've got all the things that go with drag. You've got a tough crowd. Add yeah. sand. Add <laughs> add the heat and humidity. And it's like, okay, that's that's a challenge in of itself. You know where I think you would do well? I don't even know if you've been there. Um, Provincetown. That's on my. That was on my list to go. Because that type, like stand up drag queen, it would like fit in perfectly, and like I feel like people would be really receptive to that up there. Yeah, it was. It was. It was on my twenty twenty list. So mm-hmm. I'm going to reschedule that trip as a reconnaissance trip. Go check it out. I've known several people in in P town. A lot yeah. of my friends have performed there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I've never been. So I'm I feel like check it out. What you do would work perfectly up there. If, if things go out. back to normal. <laughs> right. <laughs> I want to see you in Fire Island. I, as a New Yorker, I've never been to Fire Island. It's just Are like, you serious? It's just too far away. I'm like, I'm not getting on a train. I, I, I get that. I get that. I'm I'm like that here. It's like, why why would I go all the way over there when I can see the same exact queens right here? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. I, I wanted to go this year, but it was just, I was like, this is too dangerous. I'm not heading You there. have to go, though. Like, no, that's, I want to. It, I don't know. I really enjoyed. I enjoyed that aspect of the city because I'm a beach person, mm-hmm. and so I was. It. It is a challenge, and they're. I don't know. I I haven't been there sober, so maybe I have a completely different perception of Fire <laughs> Island because it is a drunken island. Yeah. It's... I I totally understand why they call it a Long Island iced tea a Long Island iced tea. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> Long Islanders are a bunch of drugs. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh wow. Well, on that note, um, I think we should take a little break. I'll take a little break. <laughs> um, and we'll be right back, kids. Bye. Goodbye. <laughs> wig, did you just say wig? Wig, okay. Let's get back into it, kids. Okay, we <laughs> We're will. We're back. <laughs> <laughs> um, you can see how much energy we have today. We're just like I know. so tired. Same I literally woke here. up at like 1.30. I so. know. I was like, hey, so we're pushing the show back. And Martha's like, I just woke up. I'm like, <laughs> I was trying to wake up early to go to the doctor. And then um, my alarm went off. And I just kept snoozing it till. 130. <laughs> yeah, no. I'm on like life. my sleep is so sporadic now, like I don't know what a full night's sleep is anymore. Yeah. yeah. I wake up happens. at five o'clock every morning, so even <gasps> like even like, on days I don't have anything to do, I still wake up at five. Yeah. So it's just because re- you're used to it. Yeah. Like legit when I go to bed usually. So <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. So you call yourself the real estate queen. How did this all happen? The queen of real estate. Queen yeah. of real estate. There you go. <laughs> um, I can re I can rephrase that if you want. <laughs> no, it. You know, it's funny because. So I think. The idea, the concept of a drag queen realtor was a, was hilarious to me. Mm-hmm. Um, like that was my biggest fear was being a realtor that people were going to find out that I was this abrasive comedian. (laughs) And then when it came to like, no, then I can actually be a drag persona and not ever connect it to my real estate career. And then in 2016, uh, one of the former producers of drag race or drag, you approached me Mm -hmm. and about making a reality TV show for um, 
can't name that. God, the contract's forever. No I cannot. So <laughs> one of the popular TV shows about real estate or networks okay. um, was essentially going to be a show where, you know, it was a flip rescue show where somebody mm. tried to flip a house and they didn't. And I was just going to be the host of the show. Gotcha. Where it's like the Thompsons have dug a hole they can't get themselves out of. And, <laughs> you know, and kind of... Uh, just host a show. And so that was super exciting for me because I had been working on scripted drag realty that came along in 2016 derailed it. How, and then I was like, well, the one thing the reality show wanted to do was mix the two, my, mm-hmm. my drag career and my real estate career. And that just started kind of bleeding together. Emphasis on the bleeding. Oh no. <laughs> it, 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 that's, um, so that's, I kind of brought it together as a joke yeah. And as a, as a scripted idea, and then it started becoming reality, and then uh-huh. it was like, um, now more than ever, I'm probably going to start doing TikToks of me showing property and drag. That's such oh, a, yeah. I feel like that's so accessible to more yeah, people. I feel like at this point, I've exhausted all avenues, like... Yeah, I, I have a movie I wrote. We shot lots of scenes of it. Then I had a reality show in development mm-hmm. that didn't get picked up. And then I went back to the movie concept of scripting it. And then, and just recently, I had another very large production company approach me about making a show. And it actually made it pretty far. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kept me under contract up until May of 2020. Yeah. And they basically, with the pandemic, they just said, you know, the concept is not able to be done with COVID. Yeah. We'll we'll call you, don't call us kind of thing. Oh yeah. Um so yeah, the concept was really just a about a, a scripted comedy that I perceived as that I developed and made and um never got to finish. I still mm-hmm. don't know if I have the energy in me to finish it. Um it'll always be there so it may yeah. come out later. But, it's hard. I've definitely been in the same boat for my own projects. So it's hard yeah. when things don't work out. It became a project, and then it just became a persona. Like, my whole persona was, like, I'm the drag queen realtor. Mm-hmm. And I, it just stuck. So I I didn't ever imagine that, because when people were like, you're a comedian and a drag queen realtor, I'm like, well, I'm doing a comedy about a drag queen realtor, but mm-hmm. then because two producers came to me about making it a reality show, I was like, well, then let's just make it a reality. I don't, I don't care anymore. Like, I don't care yeah. what my clients think. I don't care what anyone thinks anymore. Would you ever try to go back to, like, attempting a reality show or anything like that? I don't have the energy in me anymore. Yeah. Um, I mean, that took up, like I said, from 2016. I think that ended in 2018. and 2019, I was approached again. And then that went for another year and a half. I've been mm-hmm. under contract where I couldn't really do a lot. I couldn't do, um, like, my social media. Everything was excluded from the contract. Oh, wow. So I'm kind of happy to not have people watching and everybody kind of saying what I can and can't do. So I, I think mm-hmm. if a reality show approached me now, it would have to be, is it, are you ready to start shooting it? What network's paying me? Yeah. Where's the check? And then I will sign a contract. I'm not going to do any of the, any more of these development deals where I'm just stuck and hurry up and wait. Cause yeah. I mean, I'm turning 40. I feel yeah. like for the better part of, my 30s, I've been under a contract where I couldn't do a lot of things. Um, so so now, crazy. I, if, a, if, a, if I were given some massive 
platform, wink, mm-hmm. wink, then I would, uh, then I would definitely uh, <laughs> consider it. I like the idea of TikTok though. Just taking the idea, making yeah. it, you have control over the storyline, basically. It's quick. Yeah. It's short, and that kind of fits like what I envisioned, anyways. Um, mm-hmm. I think that I don't know. Like I was going to do that, but the market's so insane. There's no inventory here. Mm. Um, nobody wants you in like high rises and stuff because of COVID. Uh, to go yeah, film yeah, yeah. a drag cool. queen TikTok. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say, tic- the TikTokers eat that shit up, though. I've seen so many, like, house tours and shit. Yeah, so I think that's yeah. where... I, I think I should have done this already, but again, like... I just, hey, it's never too late. I mean, TikTok's it, no. still going. Trump couldn't shut it down. No, right. <laughs> so, I, I, the the dream or the plan is within the next... So, this is going to probably air at end of February, so yeah. I may already be doing it by then. So, check my TikTok. Everything's at Ruby-diculous. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> so with, through all that, you recently like discussed about becoming sober and your sobriety journey. Yeah. What do you want to share about that whole journey? Um, I think the most, the biggest takeaway from sobriety I've learned is, is, is it all stems from childhood trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really your emotional needs were not met when you were a child. A lot of gay people suffer from that, why it's so prevalent. I will say personal journey, getting sober, absolutely the best thing I've ever done. Um, I definitely screwed a lot of these amazing opportunities I've had Mm -hmm. because I was in my own head drunk. Um, Mm -hmm. And then just getting sober is not, um, it's not beneficial. So like just not drinking, it transfers to eating, it transfers to working out, it transfers to healthy and unhealthy habits. Like, so really digging in and doing the work. Um, you know, if you're in a pro working a program, getting a therapist, those were all hugely beneficial to me. Um, realizing that I pigeonholed myself in a lot of situations Mm -hmm. because of my drinking. Um, but yeah, for the most part, sobriety, I can't recommend it enough to people at a younger age because that's part of getting sober in your late thirties is going, God, why didn't I do this sooner? What could mm-hmm. have happened if I'd have done this sooner? Well, you, you can't change that. You mm-hmm. can only change what you can change, like the whole mantra of AA. Like, I did AA. I, I still attend meetings. I, I, I think it's a, it's a piece of the pie for sobriety. I don't mm-hmm. think AA is the end-all, be-all for people that think on a higher plane. I think you still need, in conjunction with therapy, I still think you need... Um, to really go back and address a lot of the issues, not just what did you do to piss somebody off and clean up your side of the street. It's like, go back and fundamentally change how you perceived your childhood. Go back and and fix and repair some of that. So I recommend a lot. I know a lot of gay people suffer from addiction. And Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I'm open and honest about everything. I was taking two Xanax, two milligrams of Xanax a night, drinking four bottles of wine and smoking weed from the moment I was done with work Mm -hmm. until the moment I passed out. And I did that for 20 years. Oh, wow. But I feel like your body just um, gets used to it. Yeah. It doesn't really question it at some point. Yeah, I th- feel like it's more so like when you stop doing it, then your body's evolved to expecting it. Expecting it. Yeah. So, yeah, I, that's been a, a journey. I'm just a little over six and a half months sober. So, um, <clears throat> it was convenient with the pandemic 
but it also got to a very mortal, um, dark place. Mm-hmm. Um, I think reading everything online, living on social media during the pandemic was a big impact to that. Like seeing everybody harder. I, there was just a sense of, I don't think it made it harder. Mm -hmm. It, it's what took me to such a dark place. And there were thoughts of suicide and Mm. four bottles of wine. And then I was drinking, I was getting up on Saturday and drinking vodka First thing I would wake up, brush my teeth, get like get ready, and I didn't have anything on the calendar that day. I would make sure I'd clear days so I could just drink all day by myself. And then when I would see people's stories online, I wanted to relate to them, even though I wasn't suffering. I was like, I just, I this is, I wanted it all to end. And I think when those thoughts got serious enough, it was like this is a life or death situation. You're at a crossroad and I've wanted to be sober since I was 19 mm-hmm. at 19 years. I was like the boring buzzkill with everybody. Yeah. Like my friends that would just come over to drink arbitrarily and sit at the house. Like even 15 years ago, I'd be like, you know, we should probably quit drinking. Yeah. <laughs> it's like who wants to drink with someone that constantly talks about stopping yeah, drinking. True. <laughs> but that was me. It was my struggle. And so the pandemic did, it, 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 it reared its ugly head, the depression. And I just had, I think the one thought was um, the alcoholics that continued drinking during the Great Depression, they died. And that yeah. was like it, in my face. I was like, you have a, there's a decision to make right now. Do you want to live or not? And I decided to be the Marilyn Monroe that didn't overdose. <laughs> good because <laughs> we need you here <laughs> either one Anna Nicole or Marilyn Monroe that didn't die before 40 that's true oh, God. Yeah. Um, well we appreciate you sharing that story because I know that's been a lot of people struggle this yeah I really admire people that like went sober during the pandemic um, so yeah thank you for sharing that yeah, I hope. I mean, anybody can reach out to me to talk about sobriety. I've I've been hesitant to really tell the story, and there's so much more to it. Mm-hmm. But you know, I'm willing to talk to anybody that's curious. I was sober curious long enough to know those signs and those questions, and I can direct somebody. But it really ultimately does go down to you've got to want it, and you have to want to you have to want to live. Yeah. That's just ultimately the argument. You have to want to live. And now, you know, a lot of those barriers and challenges that I thought that I faced and that I put in my own way, they're gone. And it's scary. That It's not it, a crutch anymore. Yeah, it's yeah. not a crutch anymore. And that's one of the other things you learn, too, is a lot of things that you just always said, oh, that's because I'm, I'm an addict. That's because I drink. When you get sober and they're still there mm-hmm. and you have to actually address them. Yeah. And you're like, oh, shit, that wasn't drinking. That was, like, that's me. And I have to work on that. So that's, I think it is, that's a crutch. Was there, like, a specific point where you were like, I'm ready to be sober? Yeah, it was, and I actually posted online, goodbye. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember. Do you remember Mm -hmm. that? (laughs) I was very concerned. I, I immediately got flooded phone calls. And then I was just crying all day and like my mom and my brother called and they heard about it. And then I had friends from out of the woodworks calling and I was just like, it wasn't, 
And then, like I said, then there's the queens were like, it was attention-seeking. Oh, it was like, no, it was a cry for help. Like, it really yeah. was, like, a cry for help. And that was definitely the moment, because at that at that moment, I was so drunk. Um, and I recall that day, half of it, because I was so loaded. Mm-hmm. But I do remember wanting to take the rest of the bottle of the pills and finish the box of wine. Mm-hmm. And it was like, whatever happens, happens. Mm-hmm. And like that post was like, goodbye. It was like, I didn't expect my phone to blow up because nobody ever calls. Yeah. You know, I'm very isolated. I, I try to stay very private. And um, part of that privacy was just preventing people from seeing what a train wreck I was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that was the moment. I was very close to swallowing the whole bottle and just going to bed yeah well we're glad you didn't because i would have been very sad me too (laughs) me too yeah and like Uh, if anyone ever like feels like that we're all here because like the people who listen to us like it's people we know so if anyone ever has any issues like that we'd love to talk to y'all yeah (laughs) it's definitely a dark place and i i've seen people that have that weren't alcoholics suddenly become abusive alcoholics mm-hmm. in the pandemic. Yeah, for and sure. I'm surprised, surprised at the amount of people that had the same awakening, mm-hmm. um, spiritual awakening that I had where it really was a crossroad. It's like, this is not the end of the world. There's been worse things that happen. This is like, and it's not the media, it wasn't social media, but you, we now share our lives with mm-hmm. everybody. And when you're seeing it all unfold in front of you and it's once in a lifetime, yeah, it's, I, I hope anyone that's um, picked up a problem that may have not had a problem before is not scared to seek help because uh, I think we still have a long road of economic hardship to have. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think we should yeah. take a little break. Um, hopefully talk a little more about some happier times, more fun yeah. times ahead of us. Yeah. So we'll be right back, kids. Yeah. Bye! Wig, did you just say wig? Wig, okay. I know, wig, I feel that already. Wig, okay. Wig, did you just say wig? Wig, okay. I am ready for and my we're back, wig. Kids. We're back. Woo. Complaining about the world. As usual. <laughs> <laughs> That's every day. What's changed? Yeah. Let's be real. So, um, I know you wanted to talk about cooking. What am I asking? <laughs> so, do you cook? No, I figured if a man will eat my ass, then he'll eat anything. <laughs> so stupid. <laughs> Gag. Um, hate that. Um, <laughs> um, I'm assuming the pandemic has taught you how to cook from home more. Yeah, I um, I did. I ended up getting. I mean, I used to cook when I was younger, and then I just didn't give a shit, and Mm -hmm. I got tired of cleaning up. I think it was my um, straight boyfriend I had for seven years. I would Mm. cook for him, and then he wouldn't eat. What's the? Or like, I need some notes. How do I get one? A straight boyfriend. How does Um, that work out? Was he closeted? I. You know, you would think like. You would think, I thought he was. Um, and I think everyone has a little bisexuality. I think men are the most vulnerable. Yeah. Um, but, you know, he he came back from the war. And, um, mm-hmm. 
he was fucked up in the head and i think uh, he suffered i know he suffered from like asperger's and then the war yeah. fucked him up and then his girlfriend cheated on him when he was over there so like i guess in, like every guy that has an inclination is like well maybe if i just get a guy then mm-hmm. he won't be needy or bitchy or and i'm like you picked the wrong one yeah and like, I'm like... You, that was a fantasy <laughs> So, yeah, we met in a bar and then kind of fell in love and then moved in with each other and then ended it violently six years later. Oh, no. No, it wasn't violent. Uh, We started a business together. We both started. I got him into real estate because I didn't know Uh, know what, I don't, I just, I knew he needed to do something productive. mm -hmm. I I feel like men are a lot like pit bulls. Like, they just need a job or a task to stay, um... I away agree. from their vulnerabilities. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. I did all that. I cooked and I cleaned and I did everything that I saw my mom do. And I thought that I would want to do with this hot, sexy man that I dreamt of my whole life. And mm-hmm. it, now he ended up, um, he's with a woman and we don't speak anymore. So, mm-hmm. um, but it, like I said, I look at relationships as, as I learned a lot about myself. Um, mm-hmm. I would tell myself, like, oh, if you would have just quit drinking, then he would have fallen deeper in love with you, and you wouldn't have broken. No, that didn't happen. Like, no, I think I, he yeah. was just <laughs> trying to find a, a a hole to fill, and and he did. You were available. And he now. did for a while, and then he found uh. another hole. <laughs> but now, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, that yeah, the uh, pandemic, I learned to cook uh, a lot more. <laughs> 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 What a transition. Um, what a transition. <laughs> I'm like, don't break up cooking. Now, you know, that's... I. St- what type of cooking do you do? Um, well, <laughs> it's like factory work. I basically fire up my gigantic grill, and I grill, uh-huh. like, everything in the world that I'm going to eat for, like, months. And then oh. I let it sit to room temperature, and then I... I freeze it. So I, I vacuum seal it and then I freeze it. So my friends, they call it like the meat factory because it's vegetables. It's, it's oh whatever God. I cook is when the grill's on, I grill everything mm-hmm. and then I seal it with the flavor saver, whatever it's called. Uh, yeah. And so then I, uh, and then I freeze it. So I'm very about quick and efficient. Like I put all the work in and then I want everything yeah. to be efficient. So like when you go to the store and you see fully cooked Food, that's how I eat, but it's food that I actually cooked. Ah. I was gonna say, it sounds very TV dinner, and I'm kind yeah. of obsessed with I, it. So. It's gonna be. <laughs> it just sounds like meal prep. To me. It's it's long term yeah. meal prep in case of an apocalypse. You can come to my house. <laughs> I mean, it's turkey burgers me. and chicken, and yeah, everything's already cooked and ready. So when people come over and they're like, if they're hungry, I'm like, there's frozen food. And then they're like, what? I'm like, no, no, it's actually really good food. It's just sealed frozen. and frozen. <laughs> I, I'm all about simplicity. That would be how I cook. I used to try to do these mm. elaborate meals, and I did that for mm-hmm. years. And like I said, that it ruined it when I had someone to finally cook for. And you'd grill salmon and shrimp and make etouffee. Mm. And you'd have all these amazing dishes that I'd spend hours on. It's like, I'm not hungry. And then I'd be... Uh. Then as everyone's eating, you come in and get four bologna sandwiches on white bread and, and go play video yeah. games. I was like, I'm not cooking anymore. So I don't cook like yeah. I used to. But yeah, I love cooking. Um, 
I, 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 I just don't like the cleanup. <laughs> hey, at least you have probably a dishwasher. I don't have one of those. Yeah, so. I don't. I don't. I, I don't have the New York problems. I, yeah. I have a big kitchen I don't use. Uh, I wish I had. Kind of my, kitchen. my kitchen's actually really big. There. Oh, oh, it's so nice. <laughs> it's so big. <laughs> you could live in it. Literally, well, that's Martyr's apartment right there. So. <laughs> so, what are your current plans for Ruby? Yeah, I think, Just in general. Uh, you know, that's a hard question. I think the TikTok, I'm going to show some homes and drag. Um, just be silly. Um, try to be yeah. lighthearted. Um, as far as stand-up comedy, I don't see that happening anytime soon with no venues here. I don't. Yeah. Because and I like because I have two companies to run and I'm good on the financial aspect. Mm-hmm. I feel guilty going out and taking spaces from people that this is their bread and butter. And so I don't know. I'm I'm gonna kind of see how that goes. I know you know I'll be in Fire Island this season. I am booked. Um, Yay! So I will be in, in Fire Island. The summer, I am vaccinated, so I am available for work. But I do have a conscience, and I don't want to take work from other people, so mostly online. Um, Definitely, I will announce when I'm doing the TikTok home tours and drag. Um, I think that's kind of going to be my focus. Mm -hmm. And maybe a podcast. I I think, I mean, your voice is clearly set up. Thanks. Yeah, Yeah. you know, not to (laughs) gloat, but... We used to have eleven to twelve thousand listeners a week, and nice. I just couldn't get a. I always had to have a co-host, but that goes back to my attachment and alcoholism mm-hmm. and all my issues. That I always had to have somebody, but I do think in, in podcast formats, y'all have a great idea because you do need somebody else to bounce a conversation off of. I'm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I can do a one-woman show, but as you can tell, I love to talk, so I just. Well, that's what podcasts are yeah about. and i think that's mm-hmm. i i mean it's right here set up to do voiceovers i might as well just start doing a podcast yeah, i just i didn't want to it's not that i hard. didn't want to pigeonhole myself into doing a sobriety podcast because when i was newly sober that was like all that was on my mind and i'm far yeah. enough away now where i'm like i don't know that i just want to talk about sobriety all the time i really want to um, address other issues so the the podcast was called a better way um and I, I don't know. I don't know. So Ruby's going to all announce things. But yeah. The... You could totally develop. You could have everything. You don't have to just keep it in one lane. Yeah. I, I think I'm getting ready for that. I, I just, yeah. I, like I said, it goes back to feeling guilty. I feel guilty trying to do anything in this climate. I want everyone else to have space. But that's. Well, the Not thing with podcasts is there's a billion podcasts, so yeah. it doesn't really matter if yours mm. is just another podcast. Yeah. Ours is just another podcast. Like, Hey, okay. y'all are Glam Lord nominated. <laughs> Glam Lord losing. <laughs> <laughs> who, wait, who did win? Bob and Monet. Oh, Bob that's and right. Monet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're, they have a great, they have a great show. I love their podcast. Yeah, they do. Their podcast was um, the one podcast I actually do listen to in our category. Yeah, it's hilarious. <laughs> Yeah. But no, I think that's such an honor. I mean. Oh, yeah. No, we are very, very happy to be glad nominated because we did Mm. not ever think that was ever going to (laughs) happen. That's amazing. Nope. Nope. But that's okay. 
So what um, has been the best advice you've been given about doing drag or have for others to do drag? Either one. Uh, you know, my, my personal advice, and this is just my opinion, mm-hmm. is that, you know, Drag Race gives you a template, and we've seen it change, you know, back around when it became mainstream on the, all the queens look alike. And mm-hmm. I have a problem with that, where it's like, I really can't discern your talent or differentiate you if everybody has the same stamp makeup and if everybody's mm-hmm. wearing the same leotards and if everybody's, you just, you look like an employee of the clown circus, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's like, put True. on your red lobster costume and go wait some tables. It's like, <laughs> it's you know, like look a little different, find your own look. Like that's what made Trixie identifiable. That's what made Bianca mm-hmm. identifiable. They're talented people, but having that unique look um, and stepping outside your box and uh, consistency is key, but don't do what every fucking other girl's doing. Like, I you know, know, don't wear the same shit and don't hold that as a standard. I mean, telling girls that because you're not doing this as drag, it's like, drag's what the fuck you want it to be. So, I mean, as long as you're, I don't know, my advice is be different, stand out, and um, don't be don't be afraid to uh, be a one-woman show. Like, just, that's the most vulnerable you're ever going to get. And don't, mm-hmm. just because people are booked, you've devalued your industry. You know, I think that's mm-hmm. knowing when to fold them. You know, if you if you want to be a full-time drag queen, don't expect to pay your bills when you're allow. Everyone's allowing cheap pay and oversaturation of a market. It's supply and demand, Absolutely. and that's that. That's a long answer to say that I think drag has hit a critical mass that you better really have a talent to, if you want to go on tour, if you want to have something. You're not going to have a makeup line. You're not going to have all that. You're not going... You don't get on the show, but even the show now offers very limited exposure because there's 14 seasons and 20 countries mm-hmm. franchised. And, you know, before when you were on Drag Race, that was the end-all, be-all because you could tour the world and everybody had pirate copies of Drag Race and everybody was... Mm-hmm. You know, it was... And that's... Just like when you're 19 and drinking alcohol versus 21, it's not as fun, you know. Yep. You take away the um, the elusiveness of it. Then I, I don't know. That's so my my advice to anyone wanting to do drag or try drag: um, find your own niche and, and forge ahead. Like yeah. you know, don't be afraid to do okay. something different and. Just try not to look like the fucking rest of them. <laughs> <laughs> Martyr definitely agrees. Right, yep. <laughs> it's um, your I moment. Like nobody. Oh, it's my moment. Yeah. <laughs> this is my moment. <laughs> we give Martyr um, one question per episode. <laughs> yep. And then I get I get sent back into the dungeon <laughs> of audio. Um, <laughs> um, so, Ruby, what is your most dramatic scandalous climactic um craziest thing that you have witnessed or have been a part of while in drag or been 
round drag. Something. Give us a story. Uh, Give us something memorable. Um, I guess it would have to be... Oh, this was definitely a question to think about. Um, <laughs> we didn't even prep you for this one. No. Yeah, we didn't. Oops. Well, you can come up with more than one, and we could always choose. Yeah, so I, mm-hmm. it kind of ties into that, I would say, is um, dating a murderer. Um, what? Me- yeah. What? <laughs> <laughs> Meeting a guy um, when I was in drag and uh, at a bar. And we... we well, no, no, no. The first time we met, I was not in drag. But I was out at a drag show. Okay. And I'll yeah, fuck him. <laughs> I totally that. I'm booked around. And so then, uh, yeah, so dating him off and on for six years, kind of a weird, like, um, I thought it was love and I thought it was fate because we kept running into each other in the nightlife. And mm-hmm. you know, we, I would be in a different city and we would run into each other like two years later and we'd start dating again. And all of this went mm-hmm. on forever. And by the end, I was just firmly convinced that it was fate. And he was from my hometown. And then, so he, I ran into him in San Antonio. I, he was moving back to Corpus Christi and I was down there temporarily. And he ended up um, coming to a bar that my friend owned. And the bartender was Mm -hmm. like, is that? Is that who I... He said his name. I don't want to say his name because he's still yeah, alive yeah. and he's out of mm-hmm. prison. So. Um, <laughs> so he... They asked him to leave. And I just was so drunk and didn't care. I was just like, whatever. Like, y'all have the wrong guy. Like, he's not a murderer. And then the next night, we were at a baseball game in a luxury box that the doctor we live next to owned and they, everybody walked out and I just happened to think about it and I turned to him and I was like hey remember us having to leave last night I said do you know what that was about and he's like no and I was like the bartender said you were a murderer <laughs> like and then he's like I was like so have you ever killed anyone he's like yeah and that he's like that fucker deserved it and I'm just like how oh. Like, not the answer I was expecting. And so then people walked back into the baseball box. And so I was, like, immediately shut down trying to process, like, okay, like, he's killed somebody. And he's okay with it. And so what I did was I was an investigative journalist for CBS. And Mm -hmm. I went, I called the Caller Times, which was in Corpus Christi, was, was the newspaper. And I asked mm-hmm. them about the murder trial. And then uh, they gave me all the dates that it ran in the newspaper. And like Aaron Brockovich, I drove down to the courthouse and pulled back in the day, back in my day, it was called microfiche, where you had to like pull all these dates and then you had to scan yeah. through all these archived newspapers. Mm-hmm. And um, I got to the articles about him being on trial for murder for a year and a half. And it was like a top story, like a Casey Anthony kind of sensationalized story about how a man met another man at the seawall. And then they went back to a place and then he tried to force anal sex on him. And then he went to stab him. He grabbed the knife and it cut him. And then he stabbed him because it was kill or be killed. And Uh so I'm reading the entire trial from like the defense was they were... The prosecution was they were in a relationship and 
um, the guy ironically looked just like me. Oh, no. Oh, no. That he um, was forcing, which he was the beta bottom. And I knew from firsthand experience that um, Fernando was... (laughs) was a top so i was just like the new the prosecution didn't make sense none of it made sense mm-hmm. they said they were trying one said they were in a relationship the other said they met at the seawall when i at the after i read all the newspaper article the trial he was acquitted for murder like casey anthony like it was very obvious he admitted on the stand yeah. that he killed the guy and he stabbed him nine wow. times and hid his body under his bed for a week and stole his car and all of that was like in the news, like in the case, it was all yeah. admitted. It was all obviously happened. Um, but his argument was that whatever happened, that guy got aggressive and he went to stab him with a knife that was on the bedside. And when he went to grab the knife, it severed all the tendons in his hand to try to stop him from stabbing him and he, then he grabbed the knife and just stabbed him out of anger and then had to deal with he didn't want anyone knowing he was gay that he didn't want anyone knowing that he murdered somebody so he just kind of like went back to normal life called a friend and had him move the body and then like on the trial in the trial they called the guy the him as a witness and they asked his friend like why would you help your friend move a dead body and not alert the authorities like if your friend calls you to move a body like, you are next if you say no. You know, you don't... That's, you know, yeah. it's so plausible. <laughs> so, I get all this information. I'm just crying at the library in downtown Corpus Christi. Oh, my God. And then next thing you know, um, I call him. And I just... I mean, you have so many years with this person that mm. you want to trust him. And you want to say, this is. there's got to be another side to the story. And me being... The investigative journalist. I invited him over to my place. Oh God! To sit on the couch and go over everything <gasps> like a Barbara Walters interview. Oh my God! <laughs> and so I have notes, and I'm like, "Listen, Fernando, I went down to the library and I researched your entire murder trial, and uh, I have some questions." And he's like, "All of that stuff's made up by my attorneys to keep me out of prison." And I was like, oh my God. okay, not expecting that out of the gate. Um, okay, so my first question is, how did the knife get into the little guest room in the back of your grandparents' house? He's like, I was having a sandwich, and the knife was just sitting there. And then it's like it all flashed back to me the first night that we met. We hooked up, and after we did it, he gets up and asks me if I want a sandwich. And I'm like oh my god, like, this is too freaky. So then I start, like, really getting into, like, questioning. He got so violently heated that he, like, stood up and was just raging. And he's like, he fucking deserved it. And I was like, okay. Like, and he he kept to his story that it was Mm -hmm. self-defense. But at this point, I was already kind of convinced that from what I remembered and what I knew about Fernando he was you know he had a speech impediment his parents abandoned him he was raised by his grandparents he hung out with like the um the goth kids he was just in like an alternative crowd and then you know 
character profile of the guy that was killed was like this silly cheerleader that worked at the gift shop at the Lexington and like he was in college for theater and like like it just didn't add up like how did this did this aggressive bottom was he a serial killer like mm-hmm. so i i hadn't prayed i didn't you know i've been anti-religion organized religion but that was the first moment in my life i had actually reached out to god and i just didn't know who else to ask and i mm-hmm. he left that night and we left on good terms and that it was over with it was very scary towards the end and i remember laying yeah. in bed and i just prayed to god and i said please tell me um you witnessed it. You know what happened in that room that night. And send me a sign. Send me a signal. Tell me what I need to do here because I'm convinced this is my life partner. We keep seeing each other. And uh, and two days later, he called me from jail. And he was like, I need you to bail me out. And I was like, Fernando, what did you do? And he's like, I just got pulled over and I had pot on me. And I'm like, Pot, come on. So I was like, come on, God. Like, I mean, I smoke pot. Like, what's, I mean, I'm going to need something <laughs> a little clear. So I went and bailed him out. And he, uh-huh. right away, he was like, I'll give you the money as soon as you drop me off. And so I took him home and dropped him off, gave me the money. And I just kind of was still like, I don't know what to think about this kid. Like, I loved him with all of my heart. Like, it was true love in my mind. And, um, and so I did. I, I reached out to God, was like, please send me. Like, you're going to have to be clear. He called me a week later. He was in jail again. And so this time I was like, what did you do? And he's like, I, I, I sold alcohol to a minor, and it was a sting operation on the nightly news. And I'd, I, at that point, I was like, you know what? I think these police know something that I don't. And mm-hmm. I think that they know he's back in town after he left trial. Like, just Mm -hmm. typical acquitted of murder, they tell you to leave town. This was his first time back in, like, seven years since the trial. Like, I met, I literally met him, like, a month after the murder. Had no idea all those years. And so I told him on the phone, I said, you know what? I said, your grandparents bailed you out on murder charges. I think you need to call them. And, and then, (sighs) and then that was, that was, like, it. I, I, I didn't speak to him. Um, he... He got out. I just took that as a sign that he belongs in jail. And um, then he started working the door at the gay bar at the drag bar in Corpus. And I went down. Oh, my gosh. And I went out uh, with my friend Jennifer, and he was working the door. And I went and told the, the drag queen that owned the club. And I was like... Hey, I was like, your door guy was convicted of murder here in Corpus, blah, blah, blah. And it was like, I don't know what the fuck happened, but I don't think, like, you should be working here. And then I was terrified that he was going to kill me. And so I never... I would be too. Yeah, I just, at that point, I was so, like, confused because you go from, like, love and convinced, like, we just ran into each other and we spent the last year and a half together and we were meant to be together. And then, like, all out, he legit murdered that guy. And the more, like I said, I wrote a lot about it, but that's where the story ends. My, Mm -hmm. um, the way I perceive what happened, my opinion of what happened is that 
and I did have some friends that were around back then, and they just said they're like it was very obvious that they were they were dating and they were coked up, and mm-hmm. um, and he wanted to break up. Fernando wanted to break up with the needy bottom, and he threatened to out him. Uh... And when he threatened to out him, he killed him. Like there was a tussle that nobody knows what happened in that room, but that's the impression mm-hmm. of what happened. So then I had to reevaluate. I was like, you know, like I, when I visited him a couple of years before he had a wall with pictures of me and we hadn't seen each other in like oh, four no. years. Oh, no. And then he used to mail me letters with pictures he took of me while I was sleeping. And then like all these things that I <laughs> guess like, you know, you're dickmatized and you're just like, mm, yeah, like, so sexy and mysterious. Well, mm-hmm. yeah. Like start listening to that inner voice because, Oh. Um, yeah, so there were pictures of me. He mailed me pictures of me in letters. And then um, I remember one particular time when we were asleep in bed and I was trying to really, like, cuddle. And, like, it was, like, one of those middle of the nights where it's, like, mm, like, hey. Mm-hmm. He got that violently mad again where he, oh, like, exploded no. on me. And he was just, like, get the fuck off me and, like, pushed me. And I was just, oh, like, oh, he fuck me, right? Like. And that didn't, it didn't, didn't, no alarm bells and no alarms went off. But then looking back after knowing what I knew. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I have no idea where he is. I mean, I've thought about it. I, I, it's just such a wild time of my life. So that's kind of why the Ruthlessly Single uh, comedy tour talks a lot about my dating life because I've dated some real winners. <laughs> and I decided um, seven years ago, well, after the straight guy. So I dated a murderer, a pedophile, a straight guy. Oh, my God. Um, so I just gave up. I was like, nope, we're going to shut. <laughs> oh we're shutting God. the blowjob factory down. And <sighs> we're just going to retire. We had a good run. They make them different in Texas. Yeah. So that's I'm, a, I'm super cynical and hyper paranoid about everybody that I meet now. Um, How could you not be? Yeah, I don't blame you. Yeah. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah. so I've never talked about that publicly. I've, I've teased the idea of telling that story, and there's so much more. But that's, that's the summary of really all that happened and how it felt. It was just insane to be in love with somebody, and and the the weird part was Fernando was five foot nine. The guy he killed was like six two. He looked like I said, looked like me. Oh my god! And then it's like, oh my god, this guy is capable of dragging my body out of a house. You know, like, you don't think about it With like a that. friend. You're like, mm, I just never thought he was possible. But yeah, it's totally possible. Oh. And I will add, okay, one thing I forgot was, like, after he killed the guy, and the, I hate to backtrack, but. <laughs> I'm here for okay. it. I'm so Go invested. <laughs> I'm, like, on the edge of my and seat. So I just, I'll never forget the feeling of, um, after the guy was dead, obviously they were screaming in a tussle, right? The grandfather, Fernando's grandfather, came out and knocked on the door, and he's like, hey, mijo, is everything okay? And he's like, everything's fine, Grandpa, and he opened the door, and he was just like, everything's fine, please go back to bed. And he went back to bed, and it's like just thinking at that moment that that guy's laying there dead in a pool of blood, stabbed nine times, and just laying in the floor. And so it was just eerie to think about, like, what did that grandpa go through? Of like, I heard something, I checked on him, like, I went back in, but it's like, that was the opportunity to, like, realize, holy shit, like, I don't know. So 
So a lot of that, like it's that fear of coming out, that fear of like being made fun of for speech impediment, like the last thing you want people to know is that you're gay and be made fun of for doesn't excuse murdering somebody. But I kind of, (laughs) it's just a weird, weird, the weirdest, weirdest situation I've ever been in. You a thousand percent can turn this into a podcast. Yeah, I was like, I hope I delivered. I, I was gonna say, I like, delivered. My favorite murder, eat your yeah, heart. Yeah, I know. Jesus I'm Christ. so fucking invested in this story. Now. <laughs> Holy shit! It's time to pitch my new podcast. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Um. Wow! Wow! wow I don't wow, even know um, where to go from here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ask any question. There's a story. No. <laughs> and. The kicker to all this is his defense attorney was Yolanda Saldivar's attorney when the Selena murder. <gasps> yes. Oh, we're putting that in the pocket. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. So, like, that's my connection to Selena. Everyone's like, "You're from Corpus, like so Selena." And I'm like, "Yeah." And my ex-boyfriend had the same <laughs> fucking attorney on a murder trial as Yolanda Saldivar. Oh my god. I'm like, good. yeah. I, this story I'm has good. so many fucking layers. <laughs> yeah, I know, and everyone thinks I make this oh, up, but I'm like, God. just Google it. Like, I have pictures with him over seven years of our lives. It's just wild. That's such a crazy story. I just, it's amazing. <laughs> it's horrible yeah. in every way. Yeah. And oh, man, yeah. I would listen to this podcast. <laughs> that should be my first No play. problem. <laughs> Shame. Oh, my God. Um... <laughs> Caitlin, <laughs> ask the last question, I guess. I'm like, how do I even come back <laughs> All right, putting that all aside, because I'm like gooped and gag. Um, yeah. Last question, where do you want to take your drag in the future? Um, I, you know, I want, that's a, oh God, how do I want to answer that? It could be vague. <laughs> I guess I just really... I think I was always very cautious um, and guarded with a lot of the things that I talked about and the things that I did. I've always been very open and honest, but of course, in stand-up, it's very scripted. You know, you very you, you yeah. kind of I tell stories. I mean, when people ask, I'm I guess description of myself as self-aggrandizing raconteur. Like I want to be able to tell stories and I want them to be funny, but. Mm-hmm. I want, I'd love to have a larger platform. I think I definitely had opportunities in the past and I didn't take them because of my fear of success, uh, my fear of failure. And now that I'm sober, I'm kind of ready to look at it from, um, look at my past as all of the material that I need instead of being ashamed of it. So my, I want to take my drag to a level of being able to tell my stories and being able to, um, I don't, I don't, yeah, I, I would like a larger platform. I think I missed out on a lot of those on ramps in the past. I feel like it's never too late. No. Especially everything being digital, like, you don't have to leave your house. Yeah, and you know? video, like, being so prevalent, like, I'm very trained in video, I love video, but mm-hmm. um, I've, I've lost 40 pounds, I still have 40 more to lose, like, 35. Mm-hmm. So I'm not as, like, insecure on camera. I just never wanted anyone to see me fat. And so yeah. I just never wanted to do video. That's why radio was always, you know, like podcasting and yeah. things like that. I did a lot during my fat, drunken years. You know, that's why I don't publish a lot of photos. And I don't, 
a lot of stuff gets done in drag live and then I'm very like self-conscious and I think now I've kind of overcome that I'm willing to make fun of myself I'm willing to like laugh mm -hmm. at the absurdity of myself and the ridiculousness mm -hmm. of Ruby Diculous and uh, <laughs> just kind of go full throttle like that's where I'm at like I want to push it yeah I think I I feel like a lot of people know who you are and definitely want to see you like succeed. Yeah, that was a that was insane. I didn't realize how many people knew who I was. And then yeah. I've had I mean, even here, like doing shows, you forget when you have a full audience that there's people there. And when I built mm -hmm. my house here, it was funny. One of the um, the neighbors, we were splitting something, and my Venmo is ridiculous. And I don't go around talking about me being ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were doing something at the pool. And I was like, oh, just Venmo me. And he's like, what's your Venmo? And then him and his wife were like, oh, my God, we came to your show <laughs> at North Door. Like, you're hilarious. Wow. And I was just like, oh, God, that's weird. Like, y'all didn't know <laughs> who I was. I had no idea. Y'all knew who I were was. And it was just, yeah, that was wild. So I, you kind of forget when you live in a bubble that um, you put a lot of stuff out there and you've been working. I've been doing drag as Ruby Diculous I guess to answer that earlier question, like, I did, I was a Halloween queen, right? Like, when mm -hmm. Halloween came around, I would throw these huge parties and have DJs, and I would host a show and do a costume contest. Well, of course, I was always a drag on Halloween, and that was kind mm -hmm. of doing drag on stage, but it was, I was still ashamed and did it on Halloween. Um, and then I just forget that I've been doing drag how many years? professionally seven seven years yeah. of full on without it just being a halloween show so mm -hmm. yeah i um i'm ready to put myself out there again yeah we're waiting for you well when you take a break <laughs> I, i'm always waiting <laughs> i'm excited it's just when i took such a long break um probably mm -hmm. like two years they're probably the two like the year i was building my house and the year leading up to it those two years i just mm -hmm. i i couldn't like, I didn't yeah. have enough RAM to even fit that in. Um, so 2020 was the year that I was like, my comeback. And then I was like, well, uh, that cut short. So um, just going to move it forward. So 2021 is, you'll see a lot more of me. Yay. Yay. Speaking of which, where can the kids find you? On the so internet? you can always find me at rubydiculous.com. Uh, everything's at rubydiculous. It's a unique enough name that everything from Twitter to Instagram to the <laughs> website to TikTok to anything is at rubydiculous. It's D-I-C-K-U-L-O-U-S. That. Well, thank you yeah. So yeah, this for... was such an enlightening episode. What a, I, like, what a wild show we just had. This is the show we've had a while in the best way uh, possible. Well, thank you all so much for having me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, you were an absolute pleasure. Yeah. Um, thank you for coming on our little yeah, shit I show. Yeah, Anytime. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I'm Martyr. And this was Wigging Out. I'm C. Tepper. You can follow me on Instagram at C-T-E-P-P-E-R and read my book, The State of Drag, where I interviewed 175 drag queens from around the world. All proceeds go to charity on Amazon.com. 
Ooh, I love that. You can follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at DragTheMartyr. And if you have any thoughts, comments, dick pics, send them to DragTheMartyr at gmail.com. Listen, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Pandora. And catch up with past episodes on Work.com. That's W-E-R-R-R-K.com. Artwork for Wigging Out was provided by Glitter Baby Online. That's Glitter Baby Online. Thank you.